It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 233 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is what personalized cancer medicine means. History's famous Greek physician, Hippocrates, used the Greek word to describe a crab, which he thought cancers resembled. The the image of a cancer reaching into the body tissues with the power of a crab's claws arouses fear. The word cancer still arouses fear because various various of the diseases collectively called cancer still dominates as causes of death despite so much brilliant research for so long in so many countries. But not all diseases labeled cancer are killers. That's because some of the diseases labeled cancer are not in themselves killers. Or that's because treatments range from successful to unsuccessful, perhaps because of variations in the way people's bodies respond to the treatments or respond to the cancers. Um, So at mid-2013, an especially promising focus of medical and scientific research into cancer is called personalized cancer medicine, which is why our topic today, what personalized cancer medicine means, is so interesting and so important to so many people. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Ben Neal. Ben is Director of Research, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, Toronto. He's an internationally recognized cancer biologist. His research focuses on particular ways in which cancer and congenital disease develop. He also focuses on breast and ovarian cancer drug discovery. He's professor, University of Toronto, in the Department of Medical Biophysics. He holds a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair. He came to Toronto in 2007 from Harvard Medical School, where he was William B. Castell, Professor of Medicine. In 2003, he received a merit that's a very special award, a merit award, which was renewed in 2008 from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. He's the only merit award recipient in Canada. 2009, he received a Premier Summit Award in Ontario for excellence in medical research. He's a graduate of Cornell University, Rockefeller University, and Cornell University Medical College. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Gordon. It's good to be on. 
Great. First question. Please tell us more about your background in cancer research and how and why you first got involved with that research. Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I think like many cancer researchers uh, and cancer doctors, it came from a personal connection. So um, I was uh, actually the child of, of a divorced mother, and so my grandmother played a pretty big uh, role in my early upbringing. And she actually influenced me from very early days into, into, into medicine as a career. She always thought that I should be a doctor. And so I was always interested, uh, due largely to her influence, in watching doctor shows. And I also uh, like science in, in, uh, in school. But then I think that two specific formative experiences uh, made me turn to cancer research. The first was that in the junior of my uh, high school, uh, in my high school junior year summer, I attended a, uh, a program sponsored by the National Science Foundation uh, in the U.S. because I, I am American. I grew up in uh, in New Jersey and uh, in the Philadelphia area in New Jersey. And um, I attended this this uh, course that was called the program in biochemistry in the Windsor School in Connecticut, and that involved uh, a heavy uh, uh, dollop of, uh, of research experience, both research lab experience and also specific project experience. And then uh, that, that summer when I returned home, or actually all early that fall, uh, early in my senior year of college, my grandmother uh, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and um, she lasted for about six months, and then she unfortunately died. And I think those two events in combination uh, are what really uh, got me into, into interested in, uh, in cancer research. And then uh, thereafter, I, I, of course, took the educational course, uh, courses that would, uh, would prepare me for, for that career. And, I mean, I'll just add a quick editorial comment. Also, it means that you've got a particular insight into family caregiving. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I am also trained as, a, as an internal medicine specialist, so I had direct patient care experience during my internship and residency. And, uh, and also, while I was a postdoctoral fellow, I saw patients uh, as in the outpatient setting. Right. Now, next question is, please tell us about personalized cancer medicine, and in particular, how it differs from other types of cancer treatment. Yeah, well, I think that what personalized cancer medicine is, is if you look at the 50,000-foot level, say, and down, that personalized cancer medicine really means uh, providing the right treatment for the right patient at, at the right time. Now, what that means in a little bit more detail is capitalizing directly on the tremendous advances in basic cancer research that we've seen happen over the last 30 years, which just by chance corresponds exactly with, you know, the course of my career. I've actually been very fortunate to, uh, to see all of these developments in the, in the course of my professional lifetime. So um, what we've learned during that period of time um, is that cancer is, is actually a disease of our genes. It's caused by combinations of structural changes in genes, which we call mutations, that either hyperactivate or inactivate um, the proteins that are required for cell proliferation, cell differentiation, and cell death. And we also know that in addition to these structural changes, there can be uh, changes in the regulatory machinery of genes, things that we call epigenetic changes, and some of those changes can be reversed um, by uh, specific drugs. We've also learned that um, all of the cells within a cancer or within a tumor are not equivalent, that some of the cells have the capacity for infinite division and some of them don't, and that they can have different properties, and we need to know which are which. 
And we've also learned that the cells that respond to the tumor, uh, the, the other normal cells in the body that come in and try to fight off the tumor, both the immune system and other cells in what we call the microenvironment, contribute to, uh, to the tumor's uh, ability to, uh, to grow in the body and, and evade the host defense systems. And finally, we've learned that, you know, um, that molecular imaging and biomarker detection um, can lead to earlier diagnosis and also earlier detection of recurrences of tumors and therefore leave less tumor cells for, uh, for us to, uh, um, to kill. So what all of this basic research means for, uh, for patient care is actually pretty much the core of what our personalized cancer medicine program is at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. So I think the best way to look at this is what the old way was and what the new way is and or will be. So in the old days, um, you would get a diagnosis from your cancer by a pathologist taking a piece of a tumor and looking at it under a microscope and maybe studying a few molecular markers, a few proteins that were different between the cancer cell and the normal cell and different types of cancers and coming up with what we would call a histological or a pathological diagnosis. So the new way is what we would call, uh, or the personalized cancer medicine way, is what, what I would call per precision genomics. So what this means is that instead of just looking at the tumor under the microscope, um, we actually diagnose exactly what the changes are at the gene level that are causing the tumor. And so in this way, one can view the microscope of the future, and even to some extent the present, at least at major centers like Princess Margaret, is actually not a microscope, it's actually a DNA sequencer. So in the old way, uh, in the old type of cancer care, which still unfortunately uh, for many tumors is still the current way, um, we would try to kill all dividing cells and hope that we kill more dividing, cell, more dividing tumor cells than normal cells because obviously tumor cells are dividing, but also many normal cells are dividing. So, I mean, this is sort of like the old version of slash, poison, and burn, um, surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and radiation. So the personalized cancer medicine way is to use targeted therapies, which are targeted specifically against the genetic changes in cancer cells rather than just against all dividing cells. So in the old view of, uh, of cancer, all cancer cells are viewed as the same. In the new view, we know that it's important to discriminate these bulk cells in a tumor from the cells that have the capability from infinitely renewing the tumor, the so-called cancer stem cells or tumor-initiating cells. And in the old way of viewing cancer, we would focus only on the tumor, uh, the cancer cells themselves. But in the new way, we realize that we can also make use of the micro to understand in detail and make use of the microenvironment of the tumor, the cells in the body that are not cancer cells but are trying to respond to the cancer cells. And in particular, it's important that we understand how the patient immune system tries to fight the tumor but all too often is unsuccessful. But by reactivating the immune system in specific ways, we can bring to bear immune therapy uh, against the tumor. And finally, um, the old standard, uh, the old way of cancer uh, therapy involves diagnosis using standard imaging um, and surgery and radiation, but the new way will be to add on to this molecular imaging and image-guided surgery and, and radiation. So when you ask what's different between, you know, current or old-fashioned cancer care and personalized cancer medicine, it's difficult to summarize that in one word or in one sentence because it's really sort of like the difference between the horse and buggy and a modern supersonic jet. <laughs> very good. Now, I want you to please, in a very short space of time, to highlight for us what is the most intense focus of your personal 
current research and say why it's so important for you. Right. So that's a little easier, and I can say that pretty quickly. So, I mean, we work on cell signaling, which is how cells respond, how normal cells respond to signals in their environment, like growth factors, hormones, cytokines, and, uh, and how cancer cells are different. And by understanding these differences, we hope to find the Achilles heel of cancer cells or find the Achilles heels of cancer cells and target them more selectively. And we also have a, a big effort in what we call functional genomics, which is to use sophisticated genetic techniques to figure out which particular mutations in cancer cells are critical for cancer cell survival. And again, the goal here is by figuring out which are the critical mutations in cancer cells to be able to develop new drug therapies to, to improve cancer outcomes. Now, just a quick supplementary. The word personalized tends to imply that what's going on in my body isn't necessarily the same thing as what's going on in your or anybody else's body. Is that correct? Yeah, that that's true, but it's also important to point out that something else that's very important, that's very true, and that is that no two cancers are alike. In fact, not only are no two cancers alike, but probably no two cells within a given cancer are alike. So that's actually part of the complexity of cancer that's made it very difficult to treat in the past and that we have to understand um, uh, in order to target it uh, curatively. But we know, for example, that although no two cancer cells are alike, that there are a set of key mutations, uh, key genetic and epigenetic abnormalities in cancers that really are necessary for the cancer to grow and survive. We don't know what all of them are for, for the vast majority of major tumors, and that's an intense area of research, and that's the kind of research that we're doing with our functional genomic studies and many others as well. But we do know that there are key key, vari- key um, targets uh, that are altered in cancer cells, and that's the ones we have to take advantage of. Right. Now, we've come to the time where we have to pay our rent. Mm-hmm. Time for a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Ben Neal. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in to the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. 
Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and my guest, Dr. Ben Neal. Our topic is what personalized cancer medicine means. Um, Ben, now I'd like to talk about the promises of personalized cancer medicine. First question then is, what are the promises of personalized cancer medicine and who among cancer patients are most likely to benefit from these promises? Okay, well, the promises of personalized cancer medicine, when it's fully implemented, are easy. It's dramatic improvements in patient outcomes and actually durable cures for the major cancers that afflict, you know, um, Western society right now. So, I mean, that's easy. In terms of uh, who will benefit, well, I think pretty much every cancer patient will soon feel the impact of personalized cancer medicine. And I think it's not at all an overstatement to say that cancer diagnosis and treatment 20 years from now is going to look completely different than it does today. Uh, of course, uh, patients who have lo- localized tumors, for example, colon tumors, skin tumors, uh, thyroid tumors, um, they won't see the impact as much because many of those cancers are curable right now. But even for those diseases, Precision genetic diagnosis will probably be able to tell the difference between tumors that we think will be curable by those modalities and those that are really of higher risk and should get a different type of therapy. And we miss some of those tumors now, and that's why we don't get 100% cures even when there are surgical uh, cures available for a particular, or their surgical cures are contemplated for a particular tumor. But the major benefit, though, uh, will no doubt go to the many cancer patients who are currently incurable. That's crucial, isn't it? I mean, that right. really is the drama that we right. are all looking for. Exactly. Now, that, that takes me into my next question for you, which is to ask you how far along, we're talking mid-2013, is medical science in fulfilling the promises that you've been talking about for cancer patients? And what are the implications for the patients most likely to benefit for the promises as they are at mid-2013? Ben? So I think it's always difficult to give a precise timetable about this kind of thing and how fast this will occur. I think that, you know, we're looking at, you know, a minimum of a 15 to 20-year time course before we start seeing these kind of major improvement in in cancer outcomes. And it's also not going to be the same for every tumor. 
Um, I don't think that we'll wake up one day and there'll be a headline in the Globe and Mail or the New York Times saying cancer cured today. In fact, I think cancer, as I've often said, will end not with a bang but with a whimper. But if I had to put a number or an estimate on it, though, I'd say that we're somewhere in the first quarter of a football game or maybe since I'm in Canada now, the first period of a hockey game. Um, But it's a pretty complex game, and it may go into overtime. So, uh, But here at Princess Margaret, for for example, we've been already performing limited DNA sequencing on all of our new clinical trial patients, as well as Patients, uh, new medical oncology patients with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, and several other tumors for the past year and a half or so in a clinical trial that's called IMPACT. And we've also extended that uh, to several centers in the community around Toronto in a trial called COMPACT. And our goal is uh, to increase the depth of that sequencing coverage so that we can give a complete molecular diagnosis to all of our patients by 2017 and to steer them into the correct targeted therapy. And that's, a, that's no doubt an ambitious and aggressive uh, target or goal, um, but I think with adequate funding, it's definitely achievable. And we've also opened the first immunotherapy trials in Canada. They're currently accruing, and we're looking to increase the number of those trials substantially. So I think that, you know, as I said, we're early in what's going to be a long game, um, but we definitely are in the game. Now, I'm going to ask you this. What are the most pressing priorities for strengthening the promises, given your point that this is a long-term gain? You're well into it, but nevertheless, there's a lot lying ahead. So in situations like that, priorities, as far as I understand it, become important. So what are your most pressing priorities? Well, I think here the answer is really easy, and and I think almost all of my colleagues would agree. Um, the the major priority is to get adequate funding for this, for more you know uh, money. And I think that for the first time in the history of cancer research, we understand the enemy uh, pretty well, and we also see the way forward much more uh, much much more clearly than we did before. And I think that most of us believe that only time, people, and money stand in the way of major improvements in cancer patient outcomes. And money buys people and shortens timelines. So at the end of the day, the the big problem right now is money. And I'm sad to say that at precisely this key moment, this moment of immense progress and immense opportunity, uh, the governments of virtually every Western country are cutting funding for, for basic cancer research. And I think there's absolutely no doubt that this will slow the progress towards cancer cues, uh, towards cancer cures, sorry. And I think that's why we're so grateful here that, for example, Princess Margaret and Leighton members of the community have stepped up and made major philanthropic contributions that are enabling us to begin to institute personalized cancer medicine for our patients. And in fact, the programs that I told you about just before, the tumor resequencing program, the immune therapy program, these have been entirely supported by donor funds. They haven't been supported by the government. So it's really essential that um, the public step in in the vacuum that's being created by the diminishing federal support and local support. I want to just follow up on that whole question of philanthropy. Um, It's also connected with what some people call the personal legacy. That is to say, um, we want to leave some of our money when we die to a good, useful cause. Um, But also, if we're very rich, we may want to set up some kind of foundation or whatever it is to support research. Now, I find that very interesting. 
That is to say, it seems to be that that kind of funding, Ben, is becoming more important as the financial stress on government grows. Is that right? Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about it. As I said, um, you know, we're very fortunate at the Princess Margaret to have the support not only of very wealthy people, but also people throughout the community who, you know, basically um, buy lottery tickets, walk in the walk to conquer can- walk, walk in the women's walk for cancer, walk, ride in the ride to conquer cancer, play hockey in the in the hockey to conquer cancer. I mean, um, it's hard to believe, probably for many people, but a substantial fraction of the budget of Canada's largest cancer center comes from people who buy lottery tickets, walk in walks, ride in rides, and play hockey in hockey. Uh, in hockey tournaments. So um, the, this, this philanthropic support, not just from our major donors, who, who of course make major contributions to us, but also from donors in the community is absolutely essential for our research program and our clinical program. The, to use a word carefully, these donors you're talking about are ordinary people. By that I don't mean anything offensive. What I mean is they are men and women in families that who live lives and who see the importance of what you're doing and want to contribute to it. So I'm going to turn that into a question. Does the sense that you're being funded by ordinary people um, in any way change your motivation for the research, your sense of getting things done, your sense of efficiency? Does it have that effect on you? Well, I, I mean, I write in the Right to Conquer Cancer almost every year. I missed one year of my daughter. Um, graduated from undergraduate school in Stanford, so um, she actually rides with me. We've rode every other, almost every other year except for that one. Um, and uh, so, you know, every time I ride in that ride, I'm, you know, totally aware not only of the great support from the community, but of the number of people who are riding who are former cancer survivors. They all have flags and, uh, and ride the ride with us. Um, but I don't need that extra motivation just from the ride because it, when I go to my administrative office every day, I walk through the major, through the main lobby of the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and uh, I don't think I or any of the other scientists who work there need any more motivation than just walking through that uh, that lobby every day. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you another somewhat political question, and it's this: um, Sometimes government wants to set the pri- governments want to set the priorities for research, and sometimes those priorities may not altogether accord with what the scientists themselves want to do. Yeah. Um, any comments on that? Well, I, you know, I'm a I'm a basic scientist, and I'm also a uh, you know a trained clinician um, who's seen patients, who's seen suffering, um, you know, who's worked in a hospital, um, and uh, I also direct a major cancer center. So, with, from that perspective. I can't think, uh, I actually think that the current efforts to engage in planned science are not only misguided, they're likely to slow progress against cancer research. I think that um, one of the things we've learned about science uh, throughout history is that you never know where the next major advance is going to come from. And if you look at where most of the progress has come from in cancer biology, um, I don't think you would have been able to um, predict it or to sculpt it out in an RFA or request for, for you know, a request for grant proposals. So um, for, I think that um, there's a, a real danger in uh, basically suppressing the amount of science for uh, the amount of funding for basic discovery research. And you know, it's not that there's a very simple reason why I'm against it. Is that as I say, I think it's going to be ineffective. 
history shown it's been an effective plan. Science was tried in the Soviet Union during uh, Stalin's time. They called it Lysenko, you know, by T.D. Lysenko, and it basically took Russia from being the best biology country in the world to among the worst. I'm going to just press that point together with the question or the point about the philanthropy, because it seems to me, and I may be wrong, that your freedom of maneuver, of research maneuver, your freedom of initiative is likely to be greater than when with the philanthropic funding than it is necessarily with the top-down government-directed type of funding. Now, I know that's a political question, but what do you think? Um, well, I don't. I don't think that, that used to be true. I mean, I think one of the great, you know, among the great wisdom uh, uh, of the U.S. governmental, you know, funding system, the NIH and the NCI, when I was there for you know the vast majority of my career, and also um, agencies such as the Canadian Institute of Health Research, is that they um, they did in fact fund uh, um, basic investigator-initiated uh, research. I think the trend towards targeted research uh, and top-down research, as you say, is extremely dangerous and, and even more important, misguided and unlikely to have salutary effects. So I think that historically government funding has been, if anything, more free uh, in terms of basic discovery than, um, than philanthropic media funding. Um, but I think that you're right that that may be changing, and I don't think it's a good thing. Right. Interesting. Now, talking of funding, once again, it's our time to create our uh, to create the revenue, pay the rent. Uh, so we'll take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Etherly, and my guest is Dr. Ben Neal. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CGMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Do you ever feel stuck on a hamster wheel? Constantly running but getting nowhere? Ready to try something different? The secret is actually quite simple. When you fall in love with yourself, everything else falls into place, personally and professionally. Each week, you can find out how to choose your energy and change your life with your host, Deborah Jane Wells. It's time to get unstuck, reclaim your personal power, and recapture your zest for living. Tune in to Choose Your Energy, Change Your Life, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Cour de Grace, the Heart of Grace, is an uplifting program hosted each week by Maria Rodriguez. Each show is made up of pieces of wisdom that you can use in your everyday life. Moving ever closer to transformation through inspiration. Your heart knows there is more to come. More beauty, more joy, and more truth. All you need to do is tune in. Maria will help you move toward who you really want to be. Becoming a more active co-creator in your world. Core to Grace is heard live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. 
Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and my guest, Dr. Ben Neal. Our topic is what personalized cancer medicine means. Ben, let's talk about the challenges of personalized cancer medicine. Uh, First question is, what are the challenges that personalized cancer medicine creates for cancer patients? And in what ways can these challenges be overcome? Ben? Yeah, well, actually, I think in general, in, in almost all ways, personalized cancer medicine will lower the challenges of cancer patients for lots of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's going to enable us and is enabling us to make better, more precise diagnoses of the specific tumor that they have. And even more importantly, to deliver better, more effective, and less toxic therapy. Um, I mean, there are some minor things like we might need to do more diagnostic biopsies in certain cases because cancers change over time. But overall, I think the challenges that patients face with their cancer diagnosis will be far fewer, and eventually they'll be much less because we'll be able to deliver cures instead of uh, all too often not being able to do that. Now, I'm going to ask you, a uh, sub-question sub to that, which is a little bit loaded, but nevertheless, let me have a go at it. At this stage, as I am in 2013, as I understand the situation, um, it's specialized centers like yours where these um, personalized medicine progress and treatment comes, and that that kind of service isn't necessarily available at every point in Canada or North America. Now, first of all, is that right? And secondly, does that then become a challenge for patients trying to get the care they believe they need? Ben? Yeah. Well, it's definitely the case that only a few centers in Canada and for that matter in the U.S. or anywhere in the world can, you know, deliver state-of-the-art, you know, precision genomics and immunotherapy and things like that. But it's important to realize that none of, that although we feel as a group as a group of physicians and physician scientists and basic researchers that these therapies will have immense promise and will deliver major improvements in cancer outcomes none of that you know belief has been translated into reality so um, you know we're doing all of the things that I mentioned to you earlier in the setting of clinical trials the sequencing is part of a clinical trial the immune therapy is part of a clinical trial the tests of new agents are part of clinical trials. So um, I think that all of these are, are still in the realm of experimental therapeutics and um, need to be viewed as that. So I think that whereas these experimental therapies and experimental diagnose, diagnostic approaches are only available in the major centers, I think the standard of care 
um, is available at all centers or should be available at all centers throughout Canada. And I think that, you know, Canada, because it uses practice standards much more than the U.S. does, is more likely to deliver a more uniform standard of care um, throughout the country and certainly within each province than, for example, you would find among neighbors in the United States going to different hospitals. Okay. Now, my next question flows really from what you've just been saying. What are the challenges that personalized cancer medicine creates for hospitals, and in what ways can these be overcome? I'm probably addressing the current situation where distribution, if I may put it this way, is a little bit uneven or uneven of the kind of resources that are needed. So what are the challenges for hospitals? Well, I mean, I think the challenges for hospitals as opposed to the challenges for patients in this case are much greater. So I think that basically we're looking at a pretty complete transformation in the way a lot of cancer diagnosis and therapy is uh, administered. For example, pathology as a field is undergoing um, a complete transformation. Instead of making diagnoses just by looking at tissue under a microscope, The diagnosis, as I said earlier, will be molecular. The microscope of the future, if not the present, is a DNA sequencer. For immune therapy, we're going to need new tests to monitor the immune system during treatment with both immune-modulating agents and also with standard um, chemotherapy and, and targeted therapies. And also because all of these new techniques and tests generate huge amounts of data, there's going to be and already is a tremendous challenge in information technology and in information storage. Um, I mentioned earlier that it's probably going to be necessary to do repeat biopsies on patients during their therapy and also to develop and obtain new equipment for rapid imaging um, uh, and molecular imaging that will allow us to uh, assess uh, patient response. And we also are going to be developing and already are developing whole suites of new robotics and, and uh, combining those with molecular imaging to deliver image-guided therapeutics. So, I mean, basically, the cancer medicine of 25 years from now, as I said earlier, is not going to look very much like today's cancer medicine looks like. But that's a good thing because it's our belief, and I think founded on a large body of scientific evidence, that this is going to result in marked improvements in patient outcome and diminished suffering. Just a quick supplementary point. Um, Hospitals, are the treatments you're talking about and envisioning uh, matters have always been being delivered to inpatients or are there the kind of treatments and things you're talking about, investigations, that can be done on an outpatient basis? Yeah, I think a lot of it will end up being done on an outpatient basis. I mean, for example, many of the new targeted therapies um, are given as pills. I mean, not all, but a large number of them are given as pills. I mean, you still have to come in and get, you know, checked out by your doctor to make sure that you're not developing, you know, an adverse response to, to that therapy or that you're not developing a complication of another type. But many of the pills, in fact, I think the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries, um, you know, have a very high, they try to, uh, very often, very hard to, to make all of their new medicines um, oral where possible. Now, certain medicines like antibodies are going to have to be delivered parenterally, but, um, you know, a lot of the new pill-based medicines are going to be delivered by, uh, by oral route. So no, I think a lot of things we've done as an outpatient. And even right. things that, even things that, you know, because if you have minimally invasive surgery, I mean, look at look at the transformation that's already occurred um, in both uh, for both, you know, to, um, surgical oncology and also for uh, 
for um, general surgery. You can have, you know, uh, your fallopian tubes and ovaries removed in in a morning and be home in the afternoon. You can have a gallbladder removed as an outpatient. You know, I, I had uh, I, I injured my finger and I had day surgery and was back at work by eight o'clock, by ten o'clock, uh, just earlier this week. So I think that all of these developments are going to lead to a lot more outpatient-based care, and that's a good thing too because we all know that hospitals can be a very dangerous place. And also, if I can just put in a plug for family caregivers, that's where family caregivers in in appropriate circumstances come into the picture because they become then part of the care of the outpatient who's just been sent home uh, minutes, so to speak, after a major investigation or surgery or something. But that's Mm -hmm. a commercial plug or, if you like, a plug on behalf of family caregivers. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask you another question about challenges, and that is... The challenges that personalized cancer medicine creates for cancer treatment specialists and family doctors and the ways in which you, you see these being overcome, those challenges. Yeah, well, I think these challenges um, are mainly educational. So I think it's basically inarguable that cancer medicine is and will be much more scientifically based in the future than it was in the past. And many physicians today, my contemporaries, for example, went to medical school at a time when we didn't even know a single gene that caused cancer, or for that matter, we didn't even know the identity of a single human gene. So, I mean, there's just been a tremendous increase. It's, it's really hard to overstate, you know, just how tremendous the progress has been in basic biology and basic cancer biology in the last 30 years. So I suspect that most physicians in the community have no idea of how fast these scientific developments are going to be translated to the clinic, and I think that there's a major problem there that needs to be remedied. So at the other end of the career spectrum, though, I think we also need to do a a much better job of training new physicians in this area. And uh, I think, sadly, that much of the current medical education is being stripped of its scientific content. In fact, my daughter, that same daughter that I mentioned who graduated from Stanford and rides with me um, almost every year in the Ride to Conquer Cancer, she's an MD-PhD student right now at one of the top five U.S. medical schools. And from, you know, from our frequent conversations, the scientific depth and rigor of her curriculum is less than mine was 30 years ago. So you know, I think that, again, in much the same way as at just the same time when where we need funding to um, execute the vision of personalized cancer medicine more than ever before. I think at just the same time, medicine is becoming more than scientific, more scientific than ever before, and yet medical education is becoming more uh, uh, of an apprenticeship-based, going back to sort of an apprentice-based training and, and much less scientific than it should be. So that's a political statement on my part, from my point <laughs> yes. of view. And an interesting one, too. Now, I just want to go back to something. You were talking about information technology and computers and things like that. Please say more about the role that you see those playing as this personalized medicine promise set uh, evolves as you are seeing it involved. What is the role of the computer, in other words? Well, I mean, basically, computers permeate every single aspect of modern medicine, and of course, including, you know, um, modern cancer medicine. So every sequence that 
if you do a complete sequence on a tumor, that generates gigabytes of information, probably terabytes. I'm not really good at computers, so that's why I'm married a computer scientist. But, I mean, large amounts of data that need to be stored. And then um, every other test, you know, imaging tests, um, basically um, medical information, all of this generates reams and reams of data that needs to not only be stored but needs to be made available to uh, physicians in a way that they can understand. It needs to be you know, translated down to actionable mutations and actionable therapies. So the informatics challenges, both in terms of you know, hardware and software, are really substantial. And I actually think, and I've said this many times to young people who are interested in entering careers in cancer medicine or cancer biology or biology in general, that actually the best preparation for biology graduate school is not biology. In fact, biology is, in my opinion, probably the worst preparation for biology graduate school. Uh, the best preparation is computer science, math, physics, or chemistry. <laughs> Very interesting. And that's another challenge. Ben, talking of challenges, we now have to take the break again. Uh, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Ben Neal. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to access your magic. Tune in each week to Living in the Magic of Possibilities with your host, Glenice Hughes. Our topics cover finances, personal health, business, relationships, mediumship, and so much more. If you want to access all that is possible in your life, listen to Glenice and her expert guests who've turned the impossible into the possible. Living in the Magic of Possibilities is heard live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and my guest, Dr. Ben Neal. Our topic is What Personalized Cancer Medicine Means. Ben, now let's talk about what more you want to do and see done to advance personalized cancer medicine. So 
First question or relating to that is what more you would like to do to advance personalized medicine through the organizations that you are personally involved with? Ben? So um, I, at our own institution, for example, I mean, I'd like to increase the rate at which we can implement uh, precision diagnosis to all patients, increase the number of patients who participate in clinical trials so that they can get access to the most promising new new drugs, and and of course, increase the, the funding for, uh, for basic cancer research, which is really beginning to weigh down progress and actually impede both of the first two goals that I just mentioned. Right. Now, what more would you like to see done by the medical profession as a whole to advance personalized cancer medicine? And I'm asking you this because, uh, you know, medicine physicians are still very influential in society with government. They still have... Um, a great deal of respect. Perhaps it's not quite as much as it used to be, but it's still there. So what the medical profession does or advocates doing is still a matter that's taken seriously. So what more would you like to see the medical well, profession do? You know, I, I think the medical profession already works pretty hard. At least the doctors I work with, they work pretty hard. So um, I sort of hesitate to ask the medical profession as a whole uh, to do much more uh, to advance personalized cancer medicine. We really need um, the public um, and the government's help to make this happen. But I will say that I think that um, it must, uh, looking at it from the other side, I think, you know, governments are always besieged by people who uh, have important causes and um, want more money for them. So, and, and a lot of times, you know, uh, it, can, it must sound to the government like it, they've heard this before. Um, and, you know, we always have to, re we always have to worry um, as a community about promising too much. Um, that being said, I think, you know, I think this time really is different. I think that we fundamentally have a much better understanding of um, normal cell biology and cancer cell biology. And I think that we really do stand on the verge of achieving major improvements in patient outcomes, which after all is the most important thing. And I think that physicians uh, and uh, allied professionals um, can help make that case to the government um, uh, and to the public. Is this then a matter of turning the, prior the promises into priorities in the minds of government donors, philanthropists, and the rest. And is that then something that you think that the medical profession and the people they look after, the patients, the communities, could do more about? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, as I said, I hesitate to say that they're not doing enough. I know that, our, our, you know, um, the physicians I work with, you know, they're, they're, they're working extremely hard. I will say that, you know, my experience is that the, the people who I, I work with uh, who do clinical trials and who are patient investigator, uh, clinical investigators at the Princess Margaret, they probably work, you know, harder than anybody I, I knew in Boston, for example, at the Harvard Medical Hospital. And I think they work really hard before my former colleagues get really angry at me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and certainly, you know, I think that my scientists work pretty hard. I mean, you know, I'm supposed to be on vacation down here in Florida, and I spend all day working. So, um, you know, I, and our donors um, are, we have a very dedicated um, and committed donor base so, uh, who support us. So, as I said, I hesitate to ask anyone to do more. Um, I think that um, there's no doubt, though, that this time is different, and um, we need the support of the community and the government to make this thing happen really quickly. 
or more quickly. That makes it a small p political matter in the sense of, and you made the point very clearly, that governments are besieged by people who want money for good causes. Right. They're short of money, um, and that's an increasing problem. It doesn't seem to be curing itself. So therefore, the question becomes of where are the priorities? And politicians, and I have to admit that I've been one, um, have to listen to the cases that are made to help them decide what kind of response would be appropriate, given all the other things that are flooding past them at difficult times. So and that's what I meant by turning promises into priorities. And that's what I meant by political, in the sense that voices of people who want things done are very persuasive to governments sitting at a table or sitting in a legislature uh, wondering which thing to support today. Now, come back to the point about voices. Can patients and doctors together do more to help you realize the promises by raising the priorities of personalized uh, medicine? Well, I certainly am not going to say that we don't, we don't welcome any support that we get from patients or uh, or the community at large or, or physicians groups in terms of advocating for uh, for the cause. Um, as I said, I think that um, our our doctors and our patients work pretty hard already. Work very hard for us already. Right. I think that's perfectly fair. And what I'm perhaps suggesting is that and this is a comment I'll make in a moment, that I think there is a case for more voice for people who haven't in the past necessarily been listened to, been listened to all that clearly. But we'll come to that in a moment because I want to ask you the last question of this sure. fabulous episode, which is what's your message, your message, your personal message for persons and families living with or at risk of cancer? Ben? Yeah, so I guess at the risk of being trite, uh, I would say that they should hang in there because, you know, this revolution is coming, and um, I think we don't really know what day we will find that there's been a major improvement in, a, in the treatment of a specific type of cancer, or more specifically, that there's been a drug developed or a therapy developed for a particular um, type of uh, genetic abnormality associated with many different tumors that can have a major impact on on patient outcomes. And, um, you know, I think that maybe when I was a medical student or a resident or, or, uh, or even a young assistant professor, that um, many times it often seemed futile to, you know, try chemotherapy after chemotherapy after chemotherapy. Um, but now I think that, you know, um, another six months can maybe turn into another two years if a new therapy comes on the horizon and that in another two years can turn into 10 and who knows you know as I said someday we'll wake up and cancer will have ended not with a bang but with a whimper. So the message then is one of hope isn't it? Yes I think there's no doubt that I mean again it has to be hope but hope tempered with with reality I mean I don't want to give the wrong impression to people that you know everything's going to be cured in, in a month or two months or next year. Um, we're talking about the beginning of a, of the, we're talking about the beginning of the end um, and, uh, and not the end. But uh, I'm confident that within, you know, a 15 to 20, 25 year horizon that we're going to look back on this period and we're going to be looking at cancers 
being um, about treated as effectively as, as many infectious diseases now. I mean, people still die from infectious disease, but I think most people would rather have a diagnosis of pneumococcal pneumonia than lung cancer. And I'd like to get to a point where, you know, we have a good chance of surviving, as good a chance of surviving a lung cancer as pneumococcal pneumonia. So what that turns into is, is that the promises uh, become probabilities. They become the future. They become the hope. And they become the change. And that brings back the question, and this is me making a comment, about making sure that the potential in the promises is understood in a realistic way and that the time frame is understood. In other words, we're not in the, you, not me, you are not in the miracle business, but what you are in is the science-based, evidence-based business of progress. And I'm kind of lobbying you now. I think that's one of the reasons that, thank you very much, Ben, I wanted you pleased to be my guest on this show because it's my impression of talking to a lot of people that, This is difficult stuff anyway, but I don't think that there's been... No, I'd like to see much more of the kind of discussion that you've given us, which is explaining, which is positioning, which is discussing priorities, which is making clear the promises, which is making clear the direction in which it's going, is extremely important. And I think there's a growing sense that that is important in healthcare, the, the people who are being cared for need to be communicated with. It's not that things are bad at the moment. It's that the complexities are, are increasing. So we need to keep the information flow increasing to keep up with that. And that's, that's the way in which I think family caregivers benefit because somebody coming home from a hospital with, uh, you know, having had some powerful investigation, some strong treatment, may not feel all that well. And the family caregiver who's concerned wants to be able to do something that's not only useful, but also isn't going to get in the way of the treatment. And that's why the communications, I believe, between hospitals and the people who are being sent home to be looked after by the community-based services, by the family doctors, I think they now start all of them outside of the hospital to to be seen as the circle of care. Now, coming back to <laughs> to you, Ben, I'm saying that the communications that you've just given us and communications like them are fundamental to that sense of looking at family caregivers, looking at patients, looking at homes, and saying you're part of the system. We're going to at least support you with information which you trust which you'll find um, understandable and which you'll find useful. And that seems to be, and this is one of my priorities that I keep talking about, uh, facing the challenges of healthcare, which are good challenges because we're accommodating to hopeful changes. So after delivering that lecture to you, Ben, I want, I want to say, first of all, thank you very much for sharing with us your experience, your insights, your advice, and also that sense of mission that comes through so very clearly, and also the clear and concise way in which you've set out all the 
things that were needed in answer to the question. So when I say all success to you in your work, I know I'm speaking for all of our listeners and for very, very many people with deep concerns. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be about naturopaths and prevention of cardiovascular disease. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.